Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to Deep Dive, the all-music books podcast where we speak with authors of music books, bios, history, criticism, cultural takes, and everything in between. I'm your host, Steve J. Today's guest is Jay Bergen, who's written a brand new book entitled Lennon, the Mobster and the Lawyer. Welcome, Jay. Steve, thank you. Welcome to you. Glad to be here. Delighted. The title of your book names kind of the three central characters in the story. We all know John Lennon. So tell us about the other two. Well, the principal character is Morris Levy. He's the mobster. He had been uh, connected with the mafia from his uh, teenage years. He opened Birdland, the jazz club on Broadway in uh, New York City in Times Square in 1949. And uh, like a lot of nightclubs in New York in those days and elsewhere in the United States, he was backed by mob money. He then got into the record business and also music publishing. And he was notorious for A, being connected to the Genovese crime family and B, stealing royalties or not paying royalties to recording artists on uh, roulette records, or he would just put his name on songs from artists, uh, and all of a sudden he would be getting a piece of the music publishing. Jay Bergen was a, a trial lawyer, born and raised in the New York area, practiced law in New York City for 45 years, uh, exclusively in uh, trial work and litigation. I met John on February 3rd, 1975, John Lennon, because uh, one of my partners, David Dolgenis, in the firm I was with, asked me to go to a meeting at Capitol Records. And I had previously done some work in the music business. I represented Terry Knight in a dispute with uh, Grand Funk Railroad, which was uh, finally settled. Uh, and I also represented uh, Albert Grossman in a lawsuit against Bob Dylan in um, oh, 77, 78, after this case was over. So that's, that's who I was. And I was also a rock and roll fan going back to my days in high school in uh, the early 1950s. Classic time for rock and roll, that's for sure. Yeah. So the book focuses on a copyright infringement case involving Lennon's song, Come Together. That was kind of the beginning of it. And Morris Levy was threatening to release a bootleg record. So can you just give us the backstory on those two things? Well, the backstory was that uh, Morris had also had a reputation for filing these quick copyright infringement cases and trying to get a quick settlement. And he sued the Beatles, two record companies in 1970. Very simple complaint. I still have it, two or three pages long, and it all focused on Chuck Berry's uh, lyric about, all right, here come a flat top. Uh, and he was talking about a uh, convertible that passed him one night on the Jersey Turnpike. John wrote the song Come Together, and that's why he got really the, uh, the brunt or bore the brunt of the, of the case. His lyric was, here come old flat top, uh, referring to uh, a man who used to have a crew cut, which were called flat tops at one time, now had hair down to his knees. And that was the basis of Morris's lawsuit. Nothing really happened for several years because Morris did not make any effort to push it along and, and, and resolve it. And finally, in October of 1973, when John 
was out in California beginning the oldies album with uh, Phil Spector producing. John got a call, I believe, from his uh, business manager, Harold Sider, who said, look, the, uh, the come together, you know, case is coming to court and you're going to have to come back. And he said, basically, I, you know, I can't do this. Uh, I can't come back. You, you know, I can't do two things at once. I'm working now. So do something about settling it. So the, the settlement was that John, on his next album, would record Levy's songs owned by one of his music publishing companies. That was an easy way for John. I've always thought it was also a way for Morris to get his hooks, his clutches on John, because even if he sold a million albums, he's only talking about six cents per album, two cents per song for the three songs, and that wasn't going to amount to a lot of money. But anyhow, that was the deal, and it was entered into the court record in October of 1973. And then Walls and Bridges came out because Phil Spector in... December of 1973, disappeared with all the master tapes for the, the oldies album. Uh, and as we all know, the, the, the recording sessions for rock and roll in late 1973 were pretty wild. A lot of drinking, a lot of drugs. Phil fired off a gun into the ceiling. Finally, when John uh, decided he was going to do the Walls and Bridges album, record these new songs that he had written, while he was waiting for the master tapes to be returned, uh, or hoping that they'd be returned, he went ahead and recorded Walls and Bridges, and Levy immediately started jumping up and down about, where are my three songs? Now, Morris knew that, that the three rock and roll oldies from the 50s were not going to fit on an album of John Lennon's original songs, but he demanded a meeting. You know, I want to meet John. So they met uh, on October 8th, 1974 at a nightclub, a club and a restaurant where Morris Levy was a member. And present were May Pang, John, Harold Sider, Levy, and one of his uh, flunkies who worked for him. During the course of that meeting, I'm thinking about selling this album on TV because I want to avoid the critics. I think the critics are, are laying in wait ambushed me about this album of, uh, of oldies. And so Morris immediately said, oh, well, I have a company that does that. And Levy was told then, and repeatedly after that, that you had to get EMI's permission, the record company in England that owned the rights to the Beatles collectively and individually. That brings us really to kind of early 1975, when uh, Levy started threatening and saying he had an oral agreement, he didn't say it was an oral agreement, but he had an agreement with John to sell the rock and roll album on TV. The only problem was, Steve, there was no, nothing in writing. Right. And John, in the meantime, had made the mistake of giving Levy two reel-to-reel seven-and-a-half IPS rough mix tapes of the album. <laughs> One of the things I learned about John representing him and spending time with him was, A, he was very shy. B, he did not, he found it very hard to tell people no. And so 
when John gave him those rough mix tape of the album, that was the mistake that led to Levy then threatening a few months later in January of 75 to release the album. Yeah, there's a couple of things in there. And, you know, reading your book, it's just so interesting because it builds and you can kind of see things coming, if, especially I had heard stories about this. And there's lots of different versions. Obviously, yours is the correct one. But, you know, with Morris Levy and all that he did and, and Roulette Records was a legendary label, musically speaking. And, you know, you, you refer to him as a grifter and you can just see that forming in front of your eyes as he tries to get John in like you said his clutches into John oh yeah I mean Morris he was a grifter he was a thief you know he was one of those people that from some accident of birth or something who if they can do something illegally they'd rather do it that way than legally even if they could make just as much money doing it legally and, and that was kind of Morris's uh, uh, M.O. You know, and especially with John, as you mentioned, who didn't like to say no and was shy and probably, you know, didn't necessarily want to fight this. But, you know, he puts out the rock and roll album and then the Roots album, which is Morris Levy's, comes out, created a lot of confusion, right? Well, the, the Roots album came out first because Morris, <laughs> Morris sends this letter in January to uh, my partner, David Dalgenus, who was representing John in the dissolution of the Beatles, he sends this letter saying, you know, I have this agreement. The problem was that nobody answered it. Harold Sider said he would take care of it when David Dalgenus told him about the letter and then sent it to him. But Harold never wrote a letter saying we don't have an agreement. It was about a month later that Capital started getting uh, hearing rumors that Levy was starting to uh, lease time on various TV stations to run an ad for this, what he called Roots. John Lennon sings the great rock and roll hits, Roots. I met John about five days before he started running those ads. I went to a meeting at Capitol Records with uh, some of their lawyers, and all of a sudden, in the middle of the meeting, the uh, conference room door opened and in walked John Lennon. And uh, boy, was I surprised. <laughs> I didn't know he was going to be coming to the meeting. And I'm not sure the Capitol lawyers knew. But he sat down. You know, we introduced each other. He filled in more of the facts. The Capitol lawyers started talking about possibly going into court and getting an injunction against Morris to stop him from putting out roots. And I said, look, we don't want to do that at this point. Uh, litigation is like a war. If you fire the first shot to start the litigation, you don't know where it's going to go. Hmm. It can go in all kinds of crazy directions, and you may not get the injunction. So we then started talking about other possibilities, and I said to John, how long will it take you to, to finish this album? Because he said he had been working on it now since these October recording sessions. And he said, I can finish it in two days. And I said to the capital lawyers, what, what about that? What, what about finishing it? And John kind of interrupted and said, I really want to finish it. I've never had an album that has taken this long. I'm really kind of tired of it. And I can come in, go in tomorrow and the next day and finish it. And by the day after that, which was a Thursday, I can ship the, the, you know, the parts to Capitol Records and 
hopefully they'll get it out quickly. Capital said they thought they could get it out, you know, in a week or so around, and they did on February 13th. But in the meantime, Morris was advertising all over the country and Capital and John and, and we all started sending out these telegrams saying, this is an unauthorized John Lennon album. You're running these ads at your risk. It's interesting too. John seemed very engaged throughout the book in the mechanics and the, the legal strategies and all of that stuff. Um, is that is that true? He was totally engaged because remember we're we're talking about a time period, Steve, when John and Yoko had just gotten back together after this the legendary Lost Weekend. And I have good reason to believe that February 3rd, when we left uh, the Capitol offices that night and walked down onto uh, uh, 56th Street, and John said, good night, I'm going home now. I believe that was the first night that John actually moved back to the Dakota uh, with Yoko. And that's all also around the time that he really made the decision I'm going to take time out from the music business. Uh, I remember him telling me one day when we were walking through Central Park later on in 1975 that he and the Beatles had been on this treadmill from starting in, in 62, and or you could really go back to Hamburg in 1960 and 61, where it was record, tour, record, tour, perform, tour. And he was really kind of burned out, I think, at that point. And then Yoko got pregnant and she was ordered because she'd had, a, she'd had a history of miscarriages. She was also seven years older than John. So she was about 43 or 44 at the time. Doctor ordered bed rest. I think he decided, uh, A, I'm dropping out of the music business and I'm going to take a break. And uh, B, he decided after we spent uh, a lot of time going over the facts uh, of these two lawsuits that Levy then began, I'm not going to be bullied. I'm not going to let Morris push me into another settlement like he did in 1973. So, you know, he was into it. And whenever I needed to talk to him, whenever I needed time to uh, prepare him for a deposition or certainly up going up into the trial, he was available. He wasn't the only one, too. Uh, tell us about what you dubbed the Yoko audition. <laughs> well, Morris, shortly after the Capitol album came out, his lawyers filed a case in New York Supreme Court, in state court, for breach of contract, fraud, etc. About two weeks later, they filed another action, an antitrust action, in federal court seeking about $14 million in damages. And in each case, they added capital and EMI as defendants. I told John that that never happened in my career. I, I'd never been in a case where a plaintiff sued the same defendants in two separate courts, two to three weeks apart. Didn't make any sense to me. And what I really thought was that once you get a case in federal court in New York City, those cases are assigned to one judge for all purposes, and he handles the, the case all the way through to the trial. And this was a great mistake that they made because it was initially assigned to this Judge McMahon, who I knew, and I knew his reputation for a fast, fast calendar. 
So by the time John and I had discussed both of those cases in detail, and I had assured him that the federal case will get to trial very quickly if we keep pushing it. You know, most of the time in defendants in cases like to put things off, you know, and delay things. I wanted to get this moving because I knew it would get to trial quickly. And that was in the middle of March. John called me and said, uh, can you come up to the Dakota tomorrow? Yoko would like to meet you. And I said, sure. You know, should I bring anything? And he said, no, no, just Yoko wants to meet you. And I knew a little bit about their relationship and how they were very close and kind of almost joined at the hip. So I went up the next day. I was shown by one of their assistants into a a living room uh, with John's white piano sitting there. And Yoko came in, sat down. We introduced ourselves. She was very pleasant. And for about an hour or so, she kind of politely grilled me about these cases. And, and that was fine with me. You know, this is John's wife, and she wanted to know, you know, what was going on. But Steve, I, I, this may sound really kind of naive. But I didn't realize until many, many years later that that was an audition. <laughs> if she hadn't liked me and if she hadn't thought that I could defend this case and really do a good job representing John, she would have had John call David Dolgenis, my senior partner, and say, Jay Bergen's no good. Get somebody else. Get somebody, some other lawyer. But it didn't dawn on me at the time. I think the fact that, that I passed the audition meant that through the rest of the case, Yoko was very quiet. She never said, you know, we should do this or we should do that or interjected uh, a lot of opinions. She was, she was very quiet. And uh, even though they came to court every day for 20 days, she was, she was cool. <laughs> and so was John. And John was, uh, as, as I said before, Steve, he was into it. They thought this case was important because he didn't have to be there every day. Morris wasn't. Morris didn't show up every day in court. John only had to be there on the days when he was going to testify. You mentioned the judge and the first judge, um, as, I, as I called him, moved on. But his reputation for working fast was something you thought would be helpful. And what was so interesting is the second judge who took over the case was a musician a classical musician, had no idea about the Beatles, but it seems to me that that was very beneficial as well, just because he was so into the creative process and the music, and he admitted he didn't really know pop, uh, and dug down. That was, that was an amazing stroke of good fortune, because I think Morris's lawyer, Shirtman, deliberately blew up the first trial because he knew that Judge McMahon was not happy about Morris's testimony, and it was not going well. And I think another thing I think was that he thought, well, if I blow this case up, Judge McMahon out of the case, then it'll take months and months for the court to get around to assign another judge. But I grabbed all the lawyers and I said, I'm going down to see the chief judge. And he was at lunch, and I dictated a memo to him saying we needed a new judge. I described what had happened. And I, I tell you, I bet my life that Chief Judge Edelstein called Judge McMahon and said, what the hell happened this morning? And McMahon said, this guy Shirtman blew this case up deliberately. 
you've got to help these guys and get another judge right away. And by the time I, I had lunch with the, the capital and EMI lawyers, by the time we got back to the office at four o'clock, there was a call to go down and meet Judge Grise. And Judge Grise had been assigned the case probably at two o'clock, three o'clock in the afternoon. You're listening to All Music Podcasts, a member of Pantheon Media. We're speaking with Jay Bergen, who's the author of a new book called Lenin, the Mobster, and the Lawyer, the Untold Story. Let's talk a little bit of a strategy because it's just so interesting. It seems to me, and the things you just mentioned, that Levy's lawyers didn't really seem all that prepared, and he didn't really show up. John's testimony, on the other hand, was just wonderful. He took a deep dive into the creative and the songwriting and production processes uh, album covers and critiques and inches per second you mentioned earlier, which affects sound quality. I mean, he was just perfect. And it really seems that he did it sort of off the cuff. I know you prepared a little bit, but he was very well informed of this stuff, it seems. Oh, we've we spent a lot of time preparing. I put together an outline of what we wanted to do. And we went through the outline step by step about, you know, how the Beatles started how they learned, as John said, how we learned, oh, you want to know how we learned the trade? John started right off and then he kind of evolved into, well, here's the way I make albums now. Today, when I'm either producing or co-producing my own album. And that's the way we got the judge engaged because he wanted to really, he wanted to really understand the whole process because he was going to be the sole finder of facts, Steve, because the the judge had suggested and we had gotten Shirtman to agree to waive a jury. So we didn't have a jury like we had in the first case. And we were able to take our time and go through this step by step. The morning after uh, this mistrial and everything happened, uh, I told them we had a new judge and come in tomorrow morning. And when they came in to the office in the morning, I said, I got some really great news for you. This judge is a musician. He plays the harpsichord, and John got it right away. Hmm. He said, oh, so we can really talk to each other. I said, you absolutely can. Very cool. Well, we know John, one of his big problems was that the record sounded like crap, and then also the album cover is horrible and doesn't look like anything a Beatle would put out. You know, speaking of album covers, one thing that Levy's lawyers would do is they'd constantly leave the two virgins album covers out on their table and pick it up and show it. And, you know, that famously featured John and Yoko nude, and they clearly had a strategy with that, right? Well, I I think the reason that Shirtman brought that up when I was cross-examining Morris on the second morning of the trial, I think the reason he did that was... He figured that was a way to possibly get a mistrial because we were in a very small courtroom and the jury was right to the right of us, us being Shirtman's table and then the defendant's, our table was the next one in back of it. So he was holding up the album so the jury could see it. The jury was looking at it very closely. They were kind of leaning over. I think there were three women on the jury and three men and two alternates. I think at that point, Steve, it was a way of distracting the jury, getting the judge upset, more upset than he already was, 
And that led to the mistrial and then the argument where Shertman lied about some things uh, that he claimed the judge had said, and the judge lost his temper and called him a liar. Later on in the case, they did bring it up again, and it was in the context of, well, uh, you've said that the Roots album cover is in poor taste and is cheesy, is like offensive or something. How about this? And John was ready because we talked about the possibility that he would bring it up again. And if you remember in the book, when he was cross-examining John about that, he actually, after, after saying it was in poor taste, he asked John to autograph the album. <laughs> I mean, right, right in front of the judge. He didn't even wait until he got out in the, in the hallway or something on, you know, at the end of the day or something. I don't know whether I, you know this, but that was the excerpt that Rolling Stone published in uh, April. Have you seen that? I have not. I will, I will send it to you. I, sh I should have sent it to you ahead of time because Rolling Stone wanted to publish an excerpt from the book. And they had the book for two weeks and they picked that segment, which was one of the most important segments in the whole book. Uh, speaking of Rolling Stone, uh, Dave Marsh, who was a writer there, proved to be a very, very good witness as well for you. Well, that was another fortunate thing, because the judge made it clear to us that if you want damages on your counterclaims, Capital was saying, you know, the royalties were less because we had these two competing albums uh, and the public was confused. And John was saying, uh, yeah, I lost royalties, but it also damaged my reputation because as you were just observing, you know, this was a cheesy album. The album itself, the music was, was terrible, but the cover was cheesy. The back cover was schlocky with, uh, uh, you know, them advertising some of Morris's other products. I needed an expert and I called Chet Flippo uh, at Rolling Stone. He introduced me to Dave. I went right over and met Dave at Rolling Stone's offices, brought the two albums. He looked at them and I said, I'd like you to listen to these two albums. And then I'm, I'm going to question you and about them and what your thoughts are. And maybe we'll use you as an expert witness. Well, the next day I get this two plus page single space typed <laughs> letter from Dave analyzing and taking apart and comparing the two albums and that letter is on my website. Oh, wow. So, so you can read that letter on the website. What's your website for our listeners? It's www.lennontheMobsterandandTheLawyer.com. Very cool. Very cool. Well, the trials and the appeals and all the court processes and the decisions, of course, took about 10 months. Is there something unexpected or what, what did you learn most about the music industry that perhaps you didn't know? Well, at this, at this time, the mob, uh, I mean, across the, the entire country, had their fingers in the music industry and the record industry in particular. That's something, you know, I didn't know. Um, I also didn't know that there was so much chicanery by not only record companies, but also managers of mm. rock groups and artists, uh, particularly in the early years of uh, really stealing money and royalties from black artists, there was all of this history that went back uh, and Morris was an important part of that history. 
at one point, I'm sure you've, you've seen Tommy James' book where Morris was threatening his, his accountant. Don't, don't ever call me again. <laughs> wow. Yeah, the music industry was, is a little bit of a slimy business. And, uh, you know, there's a, a lot of court case, obviously. That's the, the, the root of the book for a bad pun. But there's so much fun stuff in here I want to just tap into it with you so our listeners can hear it. Because on a personal level, it's very evident that you and John, you know, had quite the friendship. And you impressed him quite a bit with a legendary performer that you saw, which I thought was a very cool story. Oh, the Elvis. Yes. <laughs> yes. Because I didn't know kind of Elvis was John's idol. He idolized Chuck Berry too, uh, and Little Richard, but Elvis was kind of on a plateau, you know, all by himself. When I mentioned that I had seen uh, Elvis live in uh, 1957 in Philadelphia, John said, oh, you got to tell me the whole story. So I had to tell him exactly how I had got these two tickets because I had seen them advertised in the New York Times, you know, only Eastern appearance, Elvis Presley in Philadelphia. I'd never been to Philadelphia. I bought two tickets. I got the tickets. I sent a check or something for the, for the tickets, $3 and 50 cents each. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. Well, I don't know, Steve, the subway probably in those days was, I don't know, maybe it was a quarter or, or, or 50 cents in New York City. But I couldn't get anybody in the dorm to go with me. My roommate would not go. Uh, my roommate, Jerry Breslin, I said, come on, Jerry, you know, it's Elvis Presley. You know? No, no, I'm not going all the way to Philadelphia. You know, I'm like... <laughs> so, so I wind up taking a bus and then I had to find out how to find this place, the arena. And uh, it was like an ice hockey, semi-pro ice hockey arena. And the tickets were great. I sold, I sold my ticket uh, outside for $3.50. I didn't scalp it. <laughs> and the ticket I had, I was right up in the front of this balcony and overlooking the state. And uh, the Jordanaires came out first. Elvis came out. He only sang for about 50 or 55 minutes. And you know, then I left and back to the dorm. So I told John the whole story. Oh, he said, my God, nobody could go with you. I said, no, nobody would go. He said, well, you know, and you went alone. I said, yes. He said, that's what I would do. I'd just go alone. <laughs> and you also saw John's final public performance. Isn't that right? Well, I didn't see the final performance. I saw the sound check. Okay. Okay. The final performance. But the final performance, the final live performance was, it was like April 14th or 15th at a benefit for uh, Sir Lou Grade, who was this English entrepreneur in the entertainment business. Why it was in the New York Hilton Hotel uh, and why it was packed with celebrities. I mean, everybody was, was there who was, who was anybody, but John invited me to the sound check. So I went to the sound check that afternoon and uh, they sang, he sang um, Slippin' and Slidin', Stand By Me and Imagine. But you can see that performance on uh, YouTube. Yep, yep. You're listening to All Music Podcasts, a member of Pantheon Media. We're speaking with Jay Bergen, who's the author of a new book called Lenin, the Mobster, and the Lawyer, the Untold Story. 
Another regular in your book, and it's not a mobster, but it's Sloppy Louis, which I love that story. And um, is that still around? No, no. But the first day of the trial, when we got in at the lunch break, we got into the limo and I said to John, what would you like to eat? And he said, we're only eating fish. And let me interrupt for a minute, but because later on in the trial, they showed up one day in my office with, uh, uh, it was like a quart jar, glass jar. And I said, uh, what's in the jar? Oh, uh, said John, it's garlic juice. Yoko has found out that it's very healthy to drink garlic juice. And I'm sure that, I'm reasonably sure, I should say, that the idea of eating fish only was another Yoko idea. So I said to the limousine driver, please take us down near the Fulton Fish Market, which was right on the East River, not far from the courthouse. And he pulled up in front of this one restaurant, Sloppy Louie's, and, and we went in and Sloppy Louie's was uh, bare bones, uh, but terrific seafood. They loved it. And we wound up going there every day. <laughs> every day they came to court, we would go to Sloppy Louie's. After the second day, the driver, because they had the same driver, uh, just automatically took us there. But the, the other story that, that I tell in the beginning of the book, Steve, is that 20 years later, in 1996, just before it closed, because they revamped the whole area around there and it turned it into what's called the South Street Seaport now, I took a client to lunch. It was the first time I had been in Sloppy Louie's since 1976 and there was a the Beatles Red album was up on the wall signed by John Lennon and I said to the the uh, cashier I said what's the story with the the Red album signed by John Lennon he said oh he said years ago John and Yoko used to come in here every day with a bunch of lawyers <laughs> and after they stopped coming into the with the lawyers they'd come back just the two of them so I guess they really liked it. And I'm standing there thinking, yeah, I, I remember that. <laughs> ah, very cool. Very cool. You met John in 1975. All of these legal troubles that you worked with him closely on were wrapped up by 1977. 1980, however, was a dark year. And as you title the final chapter, The Dream is Over and We Lose John Lennon. You found out from a friend and then, like many of us, turned on the TV. And the next day you went over to the Dakota. I got a call at 20 minutes of 12. And uh, this friend of mine said, uh, turn on the TV. They've just interrupted the Johnny Carson show. John Lennon's been shot. And I jumped out of bed, turned on the TV, watched it for a few minutes. And yeah, he was, he was, I guess he was really dead on arrival at the hospital. I lived out in New Jersey and I was commuting into the city from there. And so the next day, uh, I went to the office first, and then I walked over to Dakota, and I had bought a, you know, a condolence card that I was going to leave with the doorman. Talk about naive, being naive. And as I get near the Dakota, I hear this crowd, and then at that point, I got to the edge of uh, Central Park, where Central Park West is, right across the street from uh, the Dakota, and there were thousands of people, thousands, on Central Park West north and south of the Dakota, and up 72nd Street. 
Well, this had to have been a bit of a dream job uh, where you get to meet somebody and work and become friends with John. And you write in your book that you would not be the person you are today if you hadn't met John and spent time with him and that he touched your life in ways that left you changed. I, I had always been very aggressive and sure of myself in the courtroom, but I never had a voice as a person from my, my youth because of my upbringing at the time. Uh, and at the time uh, I was representing John, I, I was in a marriage that was in, was in trouble and it was kind of spiraling out of control. By the time John died, there were some things that happened where I had to really assert myself in the marriage. And I had two children at the time and I did. I asserted myself and that led a couple of years later to my moving out of the house, finding my own apartment and changing my life. And after a number of years, I met my current wife and we've been married for 25 years. It changed my life in, in that sense, Steve, where after, you know, after seeing the way John stood up for certain things and, and took a stand, like dropping out of the music business. I mean, you've heard the song. Watching the wheels. Watching the wheels go around. People were always asking him, what are you doing? I'm not doing what you're doing. And that's, and that's okay with me. And it wasn't until 1980 that he, he and Yoko decided that they were going to do this album, uh, which resulted in double fantasy. But I finally asserted myself, and that was a big change in my life. It also changed uh, the trajectory of my career. I, I grew bolder in my personal life. I was going to do what I wanted to do, not what somebody else wanted me to do. Well, I'm glad you wrote the book and you wanted to do that. It is a, a fabulous book. You know, the personal touches and details between you and, and John and your relationships is what helps it make it something more than just this court case. And uh, it's it, it was really, really a wonderful read. So I want to thank you for taking that on and also for talking with us today. Well, Steve, I want everybody to know that I hope it comes across in the book that, uh, that I wrote this book because I thought there was a story here. It hadn't been told. As you mentioned earlier, you know, there are little bits and pieces uh, about what was going on in those days, but nobody got it right. And I knew I could get it right because I'd carried around uh, almost 10,000 pages of the court record for over 40 years. And I knew I could tell the story right of a John Lennon that very few people knew about. A John Lennon who was chilled out, happy, wanted to be a father, and turned his life into a house husband. That's a fantastic tale. Thank you for, uh, for having me. The author is Jay Bergen. The book is Lennon, the Mobster, and the Lawyer. It's uh, a new book. It's a great book. And as Jay just mentioned, it's rare that you can find a Beatles book that you don't know about every detail. So the other part of the, the title is the untold story there you because go. it is untold and now it's been told. And, uh, and I'm very happy about that. Great. Thank you, Jay. I appreciate it. I appreciate being on Steve. Thank you. If you would like to buy this book, please go to allmusicbooks.com and you can buy it through our site. You can also check out the rest of our Deep Dive podcasts there as well and subscribe so you don't miss a thing. 
I'd also like to thank our engineer, Steve Folsom. You can check him out at fullsound.com. Finally, big ups to Frankie and the Pool Boys for their one-of-a-kind music played throughout the podcasts. You can check them out at frankieandthepoolboys.bandcamp.com and on all of the major streaming services. Please support local and independent writers and musicians. We're out until the next time, and thanks again for tuning in to Deep Dive, an allmusicbooks.com podcast, and now a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network.